Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. everybody. Welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your own inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today on the podcast is Chris Wilson. Chris is a serial social entrepreneur, artist, starting his empire after being released from a life sentence in prison with just $50 in his pocket. He's also the founder of the Chris Wilson Foundation, which supports social entrepreneurs and prison education, including reentry and financial literacy for returning citizens, as well as art-related programs. More recently, Chris works as a visual artist, author, film producer, and social justice advocate. And through his work, he investigates social injustices, human relationships, and public policies. And to put it bluntly, folks, we're getting into some really dark shit in this conversation and really dig into the incredible work that Chris has been able to accomplish since regaining his freedom. And I had the pleasure of meeting Chris at Breakout uh, Newark. I think it was the first one and hanging out in Pittsburgh again this past October. And it's an honor to have Chris on the show with me. So let's do this. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on here. I'm excited. Um, I'm happy to have you on. And, and we were kind of laughing before because we, we tried to do this a couple of weeks ago and we had some technical issues. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, man. I'm going to be straight up with you, man. At, at first, I was like, fuck. I was like, I was all ready to go. I was all pissed off for a minute. And then I, I stopped. And I was like, who, who the hell am I to be impatient when I'm, when I'm talking to this dude, Chris? <laughs> right like like but you know what i mean man like like I, I put i put in perspective for a moment i stopped and i'm like you know what we're gonna get it done it's not a big deal he he's 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 doing me a favor he's coming on here we're gonna do this we're gonna have this chat so i i appreciate you man and thanks for coming on and i appreciate your patience because i was i was really upset and and somewhat embarrassed because i'm usually prepared and usually always on time so i apologize for that but uh, here we are we made it but we're human, man, right? Like, listen, we 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 make mistakes and 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 we we get ourselves into into some you know situations, which is kind of a, a shitty segue into in talking about your story here. Um, and I and I went in deep because it, it it's it's grippling and in, in, in how crazy it is the situation that you're in. So I want I want to hit the rewind button and I want to take people back to um to your time growing up in D.C. Uh, yeah. back in the '80s. Definitely a a, a bad place. Yeah. And yeah. and you're in a different place, a completely, completely different place now than you are then. And before we get into Chris's story here, I want to urge everybody, we're, we're going to talk about it. We're going to go into it. But if you want to go real deep, he's done some great podcasts. And I'll, I have no problem linking up past shows that you've done because I want to spend some time talking about some other things here. But Chris, I think it's important to set the stage. Let's talk about growing up um, in D.C. back in the 80s during the uh, crack epidemic. And yeah. what was life like for you, man? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's interesting now when I when I think about it because... I, I would frame it by saying I grew up in the old D.C., uh, which was very different than what D.C. is now. Uh, late 80s, early 90s, when the crack epidemic was sweeping through 
my community. I remember at one point, I think it was 1992, where uh, National Guard uh, had moved into the city. So I would come outside and there would be tanks and yes. spotlights uh, and helicopters buzzing all above and a homicide rate of almost 500 murders a year. That's and insane. It, it became normal for, for people to carry weapons or to hear gunshots uh, every day. And so I was growing up in that environment. I didn't grow up as, as a tough guy. I was on the, I played chess competitively as a child uh, up until maybe the age of 12. Uh, I played the cello, uh, but I was trying to, I was trying to grow up in an environment and, and learn that was just very difficult for me to do. And yeah, it, it was a challenge for me. But let's, let's, let's frame it up even, even more. I mean, your story's kind of crazy. I don't know if anyone in, well, well, let's, let's talk about your, your, your family life. Let's talk about what was the structure at home. I think it's important to frame up your, your, the context here. Yeah, so so Monday through Friday, my grandparents uh, raised me in, in Washington, D.C., and I would spend my weekends with my mom and her boyfriend. And her boyfriend was a D.C. cop, and he was a real uh, charismatic ex-Marine Denzel Washington was, from the day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not a good guy, though, and used to beat my mom up all the time. Jeez. But I was dealing with that on the weekends, had a loving relationship with my mom. I was a mama's boy. Uh, I would go everywhere that my mom went. My mom was very instrumental in my life, and she taught me about entrepreneurship and and, and chivalry. I mean, she just was. Uh, she, raised you, she was trying to raise you right. Right. Yeah. And, and where was where was your father in the picture? So my father, unfortunately, uh, wasn't in my life. I didn't meet my father until I was ten years old. But my father actually lived not too far from where I was living at Monday through Friday. I just didn't see him. See, what's really what's really interesting, though, and, and I spent a good amount of time going into your story, and 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 we'll get to the um, to the shooting in a moment here. But there's folks that commit crimes and do things because they're just bad motherfuckers, and there's people that do it to survive. And from the sense that I'm getting, you're a loving and I, and I know you're a loving, caring, compassionate person. And that's the way you got brought up and you were just the wrong place at the wrong time, the right. wrong situation. And you had to defend yourself and you were scared for your life. So let's take people back to what happened, man. I mean, you grew up in a tough area. What happened to you, to your brother? What was going on? Yeah. So so at some point, my mom decided that she didn't want to deal with her boyfriend. She had had a uh, a child by him already. So my, my little brother was very young. And she says, I can't deal with you. You're not a good person. You beating me up. You know, you 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 uh, you know, falsely arresting people like you're not a good person. And so what? So one day the police officer shows up to the house, pulls out his gun and he hits me with it, knocks me unconscious. And when I wake up, he's he's sexually assaulting my mom. And then when he's done, he tries to kill her. So he bashes my mom's skull in with, with his fist and his gun. Uh, and. We survived. You know, I drove my mom to the hospital. I wasn't old enough to drive. Uh, Actually, I tried to drive her to the hospital. I ended up at a police station and I was trying to get my mom help. She was naked. She was bleeding. And I just remember how the police treated my mom because we had called the police on on this guy so many times. And the police was like, you just going to let him back in the house. Like, why should we help you or whatever? And I was like, I wanted I wanted you guys to help my mom. And so eventually the police officer lost his job. He played down to a, a lesser sex offense and made parole 18 months later. And back then in the state of Maryland, where this where the crime happened, there was no law against stalking. 
And so he would stalk us. He would sit in front of the house. He would call us all. And he would say, one by one, I'm going to take you guys out. And so we was like, we just. You were scared as shit, man. I mean, how, how old were you at the time? I probably was, I probably was, was 15. And you're, 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 you're growing up into your own manhood and you're coming of age and you want to protect your mom and your family. Yeah. My, my mom, after the attack, she, she never recovered from her injuries. She, she was working as a paramedic and they overprescribed her, uh, her prescription pills, the Oxycontin. So she became addicted to it. Shit. And when she couldn't <clears throat> read her prescription, my mom started using heroin. And, and we just spiraled downhill. And so meanwhile, my mom is is laid out all day uh, under the influence. And then we have this this ex-police officer stalking us. And so we decided to carry firearms. Uh, around this time, my cousin and my brother were in front of the house. They get gunned down. They shoot my, my brother about seven times. And my, my cousin had got away, hopped the fence. But he looked back and he saw my brother was laying on the ground. So he went to go grab my brother. And they shot him 17 times. And even after they they oh, man. even after they killed my cousin, they stood over top of him and they riddled his body with bullets. And this was this was something that really had a great, great impact on me, on my mindset, because I was trying to be a child and trying to grow up. And this was the war zone. And then even after that, he would call and say, you know, we coming after you. We coming after all of you guys. And not long after this, uh, one day I'm outside in front of the house and Two men who I didn't recognize started following me. I had a gun on me, but I went to the gas station. It was a lot of people there. And I said, like, they're not going to try anything around all these people. And they surrounded me. And one of the guys tried to jump on me. And I just pulled my gun and I, I fired some shots. And then I ran. And I ended up taking a person's life. And so I was charged as an adult. And did, did you know? Did you know right away that he died? I mean, how long did it? I didn't know because when I fired my shots, they ran away and I ran in the opposite direction. So let me, let me, let me ask you this. And and I don't know if some, if it's been asked directly, do you, do you remember, do you remember that feeling when they told you that he died? Do you, what it, what it, what was that like? I didn't believe it. And I said, I missed like, like, like they ran away and said, no, you, you, all your shots that you fired, like landed. I said, that's impossible. Cause he ran away. And it says people people can run away and be off a, a, a drilling it. And so like he ran around the corner uh, and, and, and passed away. Jesus. And so it took me a while to kind of understand it. And to be honest with you, I, I, had grew, I grew up essentially in a war zone. And in this scenario, it took me a long time to really develop uh, remorse for taking a person's life. And, and because I kept thinking these people done so much to me. And we're coming after me. I didn't start it. I tried to get away from it. I didn't want to do this. Nope. And but you know, as I got older, I had to learn to take a, take responsibility that I did take a person's life. But I didn't want to. I didn't go out like Of course not. Hurt. No, you're 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 a good person. You're you're a product of your upbringing and the environment and the neighborhood that you were in. And you were in a situation that none of us could even dream about. I mean, I can't even like, dude, I mean, even myself, like I, I grew up in, I grew up in Brooklyn, Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, which was fucking peaches and rainbows compared to, to DC back in that time. Right. So it, it's, it's hard for someone my, like my, myself to, to relate. But when I go back and I listen to, to podcasts, it was one you did recently with a, with a, with an older white lady. But what I was, my takeaway from it was how much you, you, you affected her and she was able to resonate with your story. 
how people could could kind of resonate and kind of bring it down to to that level. So you're you're arrested. You're you're 15 years old, right? And you're you're in jail with a fucking murder charge coming at you. Jeez. Yeah. And were you in juvie or did they throw you into gem pop with the with the big boys? Gen gem pop. So yeah. 15 year old in there. What what the hell was that? Like you were scared yeah. for your life, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it was tough fights every day. And while I was in jail awaiting trial, my brother was laying low at my actual father's house. And then uh I see on the news that you know my dad had been killed. Uh, my brother had been uh, tortured and, and carved up with a, a bush knife. He he survived again. My, my brother's like a like a cat. He has nine lives apparently. Um, and I lost my dad, and I had just developed a relationship with him right before I got incarcerated, and was just trying to re- trying to you know build a relationship with him, and then I lost him. And then to make matters worse, after that I was found guilty and I was sentenced to natural life in prison. Natural life. Your life, yeah. Shit, man. I mean, that's, I want to. I want to pause for a second. And there's a piece I wanted to kind of double back on, if you don't mind, um, that I found fascinating. I want to talk about the relationship with your grandfather. And please correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, Korean War veteran, kind of yeah. like old school manly man. He fucking brought up in the days of the KKK. He dealt with his own shit. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the 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 lessons he taught you and the relationship and some of that stuff, Chris, that you're thankful for now, like as much as a hard ass he was, like he got you through a lot of this, even after he passed. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting question because my grandfather, I mean, maybe I I would say I am my grandfather because Mm. now uh, I didn't really understand what he was doing to me and what my purpose was until the age of 40. And so my grandfather was like, was like my dad and, and raised me, um, but was very, very tough on me, tougher, tougher on me than any of my other siblings. I had more chores. Uh, I had to, I had to run errands with him. I had to sit in on stuff when he was working. I just, I just didn't understand why he was so, so tough on me. And when he found out that he had skin cancer, I sat with him in the hospital and, and the doctor said that you have an option. We can, we can amputate your legs and you might survive, maybe. Or you can hold on to them and you'll probably die soon. And my, my grandfather said, I'm going to hold on to my legs. I can't work without my legs. And I begged I him. Got through, I got through war. I could deal with this. Yeah. That's what he, that, was his, that was his approach. And I, I, I begged him. I was like, just do it. Because like, I was panicking. I was like, I can't have you leave me. Like, what, what? I, I'm trying to figure my life out. And so when my grandfather. That's all you had left, man, right? He was, he was, he was it? Yeah. And so when my grandfather went back home, I would spend time with him while he withered away. But, you know, the interesting thing about it is he started sharing secrets with me. He started sharing these stories that he was uncomfortable talking about when I would ask about, like, what's it like to be in war or, you know, uh, the Ku Klux Klan. I found out that, you know, killed, firebombed the house and killed all his sisters. And Jesus. His children are named after his sisters, and he lied about his age to get into the military, and and you know, honorable discharge, came back, went to school, up into a PhD, and he said people would spit in my face because I was black. Right. And finally, before he passed, he says, "Chris, I'm I'm hard on you because I didn't go through all of that for you to dishonor the family's name." I, you you have a purpose. And I said, you know, I called him Big Daddy. I says, I, I don't have a purpose. I'm not even like, you know, uh, like I, I'm not 
playing chess anymore. I'm not playing the cello. I'm not a good student. And he was like, you are. You are. I always saw it in you. And that's why I've been hard on you. And so he just said, I want you to promise me that you'll come up with a plan to turn your life around. And so I promised him, but I just had no idea how to do it. And, and you never even thought that those words would, would, would resonate so much. So your grandfather passes, you're, you're, you're in prison here. And if, if you don't mind me asking about that, that time in there and listen, like, so my, my biggest fear in life, man, my biggest fear aside from losing my family and those closest is, is ending up in jail, especially for something that I didn't want to do or didn't have to do. And, Listen, there's no place for for a white Jewish dude from the burbs in prison. I'm not going to last too long in there, man. Let's call it what it is, right? Yeah. <laughs> I might have to get I might have to get some tats I don't want to get, right? Um, we we kid, but we really don't here. Um, what got what got you through, man? Like what day to day, day in and day out? How did you? How did you? How did you? How did you? You know, kill that time in prison. So so unfortunately, when when I was sentenced and when my grandfather passed. They, you know, having a life sentence, they felt initially that I was a danger to myself and to others. And so they put me in solitary confinement for a long time. And, and it was it was it was torture. And I went crazy in there. Uh, and I did have a lot of time to reflect on my life. And I thought about all kinds of things to keep me uh, to keep me like focused and not, you know, trying to take my own life, which I was thinking about. How could you uh, not? Yeah. When, when there's no hope and there's nothing left, when you have a natural life sentence with no chance of parole, right? Right, exactly. You knew that this is the rest of your life. And who yeah. wants to spend the rest of life in a fucking cage? Yes, slow death. I, I think that, I think, you know, I, I write about this in this workbook that I created. Uh, and it was, this was my rock bottom moment. And, and for me, it was, I had lost everything. Even my mom, who was battling addiction and depression, was like, what's the point? You're never coming home. So they stopped accepting my calls. I didn't get mail. And I just was alone. I mean, that was it for me. But what, what got me through was, you know, maybe a year later after being sentenced, I met a person who also had a life sentence. He was about a year older than me. His name was Steven. And he just, he had this plan and this belief that through education, he was studying computer code. And just, you know, coming out in, in the rec room and just writing on blank sheets of paper, like, I thought it was gibberish. I was like, what is this this, this, this shit you write? <laughs> and he said, it's code. And I'm going to teach myself computer programming. I'm going to get out of prison, start a software company, buy my dream car. And I laughed at him. I said, bro, like, you you nuts. Like, we don't even have a computer. And by the way, we got life. Yeah, but you're not getting out and starting no computer. You're not no Steve Jobs. Right. And so, but, but what he told me after that, he says, you know, no one can take away knowledge that we put in our minds. And, and this could be our superpower. And I thought about that. I looked around what was happening. People were fighting, doing push-ups, And it was just madness in, in the housing unit that I was living in. And I knew I was a good person. And so this is when I decided to go back to my cell. And I started to, to, to think about who I could be. I was 19 when I did this. I said, well, who, could, who would I be at 40? I know I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I didn't know I would become an artist, but I, I, you know, I said, I wanted to educate myself. I love to read books. I said, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get a college degree. Like everyone was like, get, get your high school diploma and get a college degree. So I'm going to do these things. So I'm also going to buy my dream car. I, I want a black Corvette convertible and mm -hmm. I want to go places. And so I sent a copy uh, to this uh, of my plan to my grandmother 
and to my judge, and then I taped a copy on my cell wall, and and that's that's how it started. That that was you, you needed you needed something to to live for. Yeah. I mean, you seriously need something to live for, and what else is there? You're just gonna rot away for the next sixty years of your life, or you're gonna have hope and 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 have faith. So when you started putting these words on paper, did, did you ever think that the that they were gonna get read? Did you ever think the judge was gonna was gonna read them? No. And, and, and for, for many years, when I would send uh, updates to my master plan or, or progress reports, I would just get a response saying, your letter has been received and placed in your file. No, like, good luck. Keep it up. And, and you know, these letters will have like a, a, a copy of my high school diploma or my college degree and stuff. And it's just like, it's been noted that it's been received. And it's like, am I ever getting out of here? Like, am I ever going to be able to get a second chance or, or, or have my sentence be reconsidered? What what was that that flame that fire that kept it your 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 passion burning then? It was a it was a combination of it was a combination of as I started to accomplish things and learn languages and, and read books, my confidence started to to build up, and I started to really believe that I was intelligent. There was, and then there was prison officials who would tell me that I would I belong in here and I would never get out. And so that that was one thing. And the other thing is I started to have like this chip on my shoulder that I wanted to prove to myself and I want to prove to everyone else that my life was redeemable and that I would get out and I would be dope and do everything on my list. And so that was the drive. And I call it a positive delusion. Uh, I write about that because you got to you kind of got to be crazy to think that you can get out of there and, and get out and accomplish this. But I felt like if I believed it, then I need to be ready if I get an opportunity to get out. And so that's what I'm in the morning. So Chris, and for those who don't know, and in your own words, how did, how did, how did Chris Wilson beat a life sentence? I, at a certain point, and it's a combination of, of luck, God, and, and hard work. And so I wasn't like a, a super religious person, but at some point I was mentoring some young guys, some gang members, and they just was like, dude, I never hear you talk about God and you helped all these people. I don't understand why, like, you can't get a second chance. And so I had to go, ba- go back to my cell and just try to talk to God and say, listen, I need a sign. I need something. It's, it's a lot of temptation in prison. I've been working for a decade with, you know, uh, no, no infractions in prison. I accomplished all this stuff. I read hundreds of books. You got to give me a sign, God. And two weeks later, I got a court date. I mean, do you still look at this as a form of, you know, divine intervention, man? Hey there, fellow podcast listeners. I'm Kevin Logan Jr., host of the Immutable Mindset Podcast. If you're fascinated by Web3, blockchain, and disruptive technology, then you won't want to miss a show. Join me and co-host Adam Posner as we introduce you to an incredible lineup of successful entrepreneurs, builders, and industry veterans who share their insider knowledge, unique perspectives, and personal stories that will leave you inspired and craving more. Like Mike Isogawa, the CEO of Webacy, who shares her journey from being a Cirque du Soleil performer to a cybersecurity pioneer. Or Dave Schwed, COO of Halborn, who discusses the future of digital asset security and how the future of assets will be tokenized. We also break down complex topics into digestible bits, perfect for both experts and newcomers to the world of Web3. So if you're ready to stay ahead of the curve, subscribe to the Immutable Mindset Podcast now, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Let's talk about that day, because I know you remember the day that you got the court date, because like you really don't get good news in prison yeah, ever. No, no, I... I it was strange because my lawyer would always come visit me. And he just wanted to know, like, what, what were you reading? 
how many characters in Chinese are you up to? And, and you know, what, what's going on in your life? How are you getting by? And, and it was one of those things where he told me at one point that in order for me to get my sentence reduced and make it back home, I had to figure out how to cure cancer. So it was really no hope for me to get out, but he still would just stay in touch with me. And one day he just showed up and he just said, dude, I don't know what the fuck happened, but you got a court date. And I, and we had been denied five times for, for reconsideration. So I was like, what, what happened? What'd you do? He says, man, I didn't do anything. <laughs> and he was like, are you ready? And I was like, of course I'm ready. And I, and I had made my mind up e- either way, get released or get my sentence reduced that I was just going to be honest with the judge. I was just going to talk about what, what, else, do, what else you have though. You have nothing else but your story, man. Yeah. Radical yeah. transparency. So, so what happened that day you're in front of the judge? You know, the prosecutor did her job of, you know, I should not go home. I should grow up and die in, in prison. And I just told her the truth. I said, listen, you know, I, I'm a mama's boy. I love my mom more than anything in the world. And can you imagine what it felt like to watch my mom be raped in front of me? Can you imagine what it felt like to lose five of my friends before the age of 17, two who died in front of me calling for their mom, for their mothers? And then I also talked about remorse. I talked about how through many years of therapy, how I learned to take responsibility, what, what actually what remorse is and what it felt, felt like, and that your actions also determine whether or not you're remorseful. And so that changed me as a person. And then I talked about you know, what I would do if she gave me a second chance, how I would come home and be the dumbest entrepreneur. I would write a book. I would travel the world. I would go back into these communities and help my people. And she just stared at me for a while, for like minutes. She just didn't say anything. And everyone in the courtroom was looking at me, the sheriffs and bailiffs was just like staring and looking at me, looking at her. And I'm fucking sweating. It's like a movie. It's like a fucking movie. My heart's beating. And then she says, I'm going to give you a second chance to live your life. But here's the deal. You can't get out and be regular. You wrote all these things that you want to do. You got It's law now. So you got to do everything on, on the list. And you better not disappoint me. And so I ended up doing 16 and a half years in total. Uh, and I came home and I just I had a lot of responsibility. One, I didn't want to let my judge down. Didn't want to let myself down. And then I wanted to prove to everyone that we can turn our lives around and we could be dope. Redemption. And- it's redemption time, man. So let me ask you this. Um, I've had formerly incarcerated folks on my show uh, before. And and I. What was that first day like when you when you walked out of the prison gates and, and came home? What was that first day like, man? 16 years. You went in as a child. And you're coming out as a, as a, as a, <laughs> we're old now, man. <laughs> we're, we're not kids anymore, man. You and I are close to the same age. We're not kids. I turn 44 tomorrow, man. Like we're close to same, we're old, right? Like you missed a huge part, more than half of your fucking life, man. What was it like that first day? What was it? What'd you do? It was, it was high levels of anxiety. And I remember when I, when I was released uh, in Baltimore and I was trying to figure out why people were like, like, talking to themselves and I, I didn't know about like the earpieces and, and no you were it's like the Jetsons and Flintstone shit man right <laughs> I was freaked out about that but just so nervous of like not messing up and it's like you got to report to your PO in 24 hours you got to figure this out you got to figure this out and it's like I don't really know how to do any of you this you don't want to look at anybody wrong yeah. so so it, I was it was it was really a high level anxiety for me but we're, we're really I was fascinated. My first day home was was Google and YouTube. Mm-hmm. I said, I can I can type in some stuff, some questions. All the knowledge is here. 
and it's just like boom, it just pops up. So I spent all night just Googling and YouTubing, like all night, just all kind of stuff. How to tie a tie, uh, how to use the bus system, subway system, like oh, like you know, uh, you had all this to learn about about what was going on in the world in the last 15, 16 years and civilization and, and things. I mean, you stayed in touch with people and you heard, and I don't know how much news and content you consumed, but it's it's a it's a it's a crazy norm. But you walk out, you have correct me if I'm wrong, the story goes you have 50 bucks in your pocket, and you knew that you on your master plan, you had to start a business. So how did furniture and construction come to mind? Is it what you knew, what you felt you could do with your hands? Like, yeah. let's talk about stuff. Like, let's get into entrepreneurship, right? Like you have it in your DNA, man. Like, yeah. how do you start a business? And who the hell is going to start a business with an ex-con? Right, totally. So so I, I guess, you know, like I said earlier, I am my grandfather. So I've always had a very strong work ethic before prison, uh, in prison. And so I learned how to work with my hands. I learned, you know, carpentry, everything there is to do, carpentry, sheet metal, uh, you name it, uh, computer repair, like, you know, A-plus certification. So I knew how to do stuff. But, like, immediately I had I had a friend who was like, I'll loan you some money, you know, to help you get on your feet. Like, what do you need? And I was like, give me 500 bucks. And I was like, what you going to do with 500 bucks? And I got a, a $10 phone from Radio Shack. I got a, a gas can and a lawnmower. And I said, I'm gonna cut grass. I see people that come in the neighborhood. I was staying on my friend's sofa and waiting on my food stamps. I said, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna cut grass at $30 a yard or $35 a yard. Uh, and I was working for a dollar and 25 cents in prison. So I was like, I can I yeah, can anything more than that, you're you're killing it. So I started cutting grass and I was making, you know, maybe a uh, hundred to two hundred bucks a day. And I said, I'm gonna go to business school. That, that's my plan. So I got into school and I was cutting grass for a little bit. And then I asked the school to give me a chance to demonstrate myself as a student. I had good grades already. So I got a little some transfer uh, scholarship credits and some financial aid. And then my 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 uh, university liked like how I performed as a student. And I would ask for more work. And who the fuck does that? Like I would do all the work and I would say, give me some more books to read. I would push my teachers. I want more. I want more. <laughs> and so I ended up getting a job that my school helped me get doing exactly what I wanted to do, a community organizer and workforce development um, a coordinator. And so I started doing that. And this was in Baltimore in one of the toughest neighborhoods in central Baltimore. And I, I was, I'm not from Baltimore. So I was, I was parachuted in yeah. into and it was like help people get jobs. If you yeah, it's not your hood. Yeah. And I was like, this is it. I was like Rambo. Like I parachuted in, and it was like figure it out. And, and people like Baltimore is a tough, soulful city. I love Baltimore, but people was like, hey, yo, you ain't from here. The fuck you? Why should I listen to you? What do you know? What do you? What do you? Why are you trying to tell me something? This isn't even your town. How do yeah. you know this? Yeah. And so I, I was like Socrates and I was like, the paramedics ain't from around here. The, yeah. the male lady isn't from around here, but we come in around here and we provide the service. And so I would sit out there and I didn't really, I mean, it's stupid when I think about it now, but I didn't really have a fear of, of um, you know, someone like hurting me or, or being shot because I had grew up in prison and I was a mentor in prison. And so some of the OGs that was that were still incarcerated were vouching for me. And so they was like, oh, you yeah, need they, to- they, they, they put the word out, right? Like, don't mess with this guy. Yeah. And so the rest was up to me. The rest, now it was execution, like as an entrepreneur. And so um, I started, when I got into business school, I started my professors. And, and by the way, I was in a, uh, a special business program. And it's like called, like the Ratcliffe Scholar uh, Entrepreneurship Program at University of Baltimore. 
And this was the Navy SEALs of business school. There was a dress code, business, Mm -hmm. no phones, no laptops. We had to do your case studies. You had to show up on time. You had to pitch. You have to go to business pitch competitions. And you had to start a business that generated revenue. And if you couldn't do it, you didn't graduate. What was that business, man? So, so I started my, my first company was a furniture restoration and furniture design company. And so I started, I started doing that work, which I knew how to do. I learned in prison. And I remember my, my business professor, like my first gig, my first proof of concept. He says, Chris is strange to say this now though, but he says, Chris, you want to think about your service or your products as a virus. And I want you to go out and get the right person infected with it. Find your first follower. And he made, he made me get up. He says, shut the books and get out of class right now and go find your first follower and don't fucking come back to school until you do it. And so I, I, I left class and I'm like, what? Like, am I being put out of school? How am I figure this out? But I like pressure. So I walked across the street to this high end hotel and I went and pitched to the owners of redesigning their top floor uh, lounge area that I knew Cal Ripken liked to hang out, the basketball, I mean, I, I mean baseball. baseball yeah. Yeah. And so I was able to secure this contract. Wait, 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 pause for a second. All right. Let, let's high end hotel. Yeah. You have a, a, an, a, an ex felon coming in there. Yeah. Saying he just got out, started a business. Did they look at you funny? How did you, how did you win this? This is important here. I don't know if you've gotten deep into that specific one. Here's a, here's a case study here on the podcast. How, how did, how did you go in? What was your selling point? What was your point of differentiation? How'd you go in there and convince these folks? why they should hire you to redesign this uh, upper lobby. So, yeah. So I have to credit my business school professors who constantly made us pitch every class. We had to pitch. What is, what is the problem that you solve and how are you going to do it? And like, how do you get your numbers right and stuff? And so I knew about that, but the other thing that I started to understand through business school was that business is usually done and maintained and grown by building relationships. Amen. I went in to the owners and I told my story. I said, here's who I am. And, and, you know, this is what I'm working on. And you weren't looking for a handout. You're looking for a hand up. Yeah, no, not at all. And I said, we'll get the job done. They, pro- they, they probably could have paid me a little more, but, but whatever. And I said, I'll get the job done on time. Uh, I hire formerly incarcerated people. It's my team. And they, they took a liking to me and we built a relationship and I got this deposit for $30,000 and I went to the bank. And I asked for uh, money and uh, asked for it in cash and I put it in a bag and then I got a copy of my contract and I went back to school. I went back to class next week. Great. And I stood up and I told my story to my class, to my professors about about having confidence, about telling my story, about, you know, execution. And then I took the money uh, that was in the bag and I just poured it on the on the table in front of a movie, man. (laughs) And my professor fucking cried. Literally. Tears ran out of Dude, I gotta ask you, man. What's 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 Chris Wilson's secret to confidence? What's the formula? What's the secret sauce, man? I think I think you you confidence is developed. You you need the short wins. So as you start as you start reading, as you start making your accomplishments, like even cutting grass every day, and it's like, damn, I made two hundred dollars. It's like I just like you feel good about that. Like there, there's no uh, you know, I, my work ethic is strong, and so that. But also doing your homework, staying up late at night and reading the Harvard. Like I was reading these Harvard case studies and 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 learning how to troubleshoot and understanding that if something's going, something's always going to go wrong. And you got to be willing to pivot and, and, and think outside of the box. And so I'm the type of person 
that it's like, you know, I'll make it work. And so I started to develop confidence and that's how it started. Yeah. You got it. You got to build it. So while you're on the course over the, over the last number of years, have, have you, have you straight at all? Have you deviated from the master plan? Have you stepped yeah. out of line at all? Like, or were you, sorry, were you tempted to step out of line? No, I, I was never really tempted to step out of line, but I do, I did, I did uh, edit and make modifications to my master plan, which I think everyone should do um, who has a master plan. So I've, I edit, I've edited a few things to the master plan, but, but for the most part, I just stuck to what was on the master plan. And, you know, it's, a, it's the equivalent of, of uh, climbing a mountain. There's many paths to get to the top, but my goal is to get to the top. And sometimes I had to take a different route. And, you know, I didn't plan to be a visual artist and like, that's my sole profession right now. So yeah, we're going to get, we're going to get to that in a second, but I'm curious, Chris, what, what are, what are those core tenants or milestones of your master plan and, and, yeah. and where are you at on that ladder? Right. So, so a few things is write, write your stuff down, write your plan down. So like I write stuff down, I'm a person, I'm a man of my word. So if I write it down, I got to do whatever I got to do to get to it. Uh, second accountability partners. If I write something down, I'm going to share it with people in my circle, people that, that I respect and people that respect me. So they hold me accountable. Oh, you said you want to get your college degree or you want to learn Spanish. Where are you at with that? What's going on with that? And so those are the things, but also, uh, short, like achievable things, things that help me build my confidence, a place I wanted to go to Spain at one point. And, and like, it feels good to check stuff off your list, work hard mm-hmm. off your list. And then my confidence started to build. And so those were some things. Also, uh, creating a personal board of advisors. And these were people, and I would trick people into this. So I would have people that I looked up to who were really smart in specific areas. And I would say, I want to take you out for coffee once a month or lunch. And I would pick their brains. But really, secretly, they were my board of advisors. And I still have people That's like That's a move. That's a move. I, t- I tell everyone this. I, g- I got my Mount Rushmore. I got my Mount Rushmore of personal advisors. And- some of them I talk to all the time. Some of them I talk to once a year. Some of them I don't even talk to, but I absorb through osmosis where they are in the social sphere, the stuff they're putting out there. And that's what you got to build around. And I love the idea of, of, of accountability. So fast forward, I mean, listen, man, you, it's night and day between where you were and where you are now. You, yeah. You're living, you're living, you're living the, the good life, the juxtaposition of, of both sides of that. How, how does Chris Wilson stay humble and focused, man? I stay humble and focused by remembering where I came from, remembering how I grew up, remembering the the, the thousands of people that are still incarcerated that look up to me and are following in my footsteps. Uh, and I also think about legacy. I think about what people will say about me when I'm no longer here. And so every conversation, every interaction with me, um, for example, uh, everyone who works for me, one of our policies is you always have to be nice and diplomatic, even if even if a person's an asshole. I'm a dick. Simple but, rule. Yeah. And so stuff like that keeps keeps me grounded. And now it's just the work. The work through my foundation uh, is is really really my life's work. The rest of the stuff is just you know fun, like you know a nice house, you know buy a Ferrari or something like that. Like that's fun and that's cool. But like what gets me out the bed in the morning is my work and helping other people. Uh, just find that switch within themselves. Because really, the thing about it now, the, the the person who I am now and the person who I was when I was younger, it's my mindset. It's my mindset. That's the only difference. I'm willing to work hard, but I think differently now. How often? How often do you check in with that judge? How often do you check in on that master plan? 
So we uh, we actually became friends, and we we do work together. We we work with other judges. We work with state attorneys. And I remember asking her one day uh, when I met her. She was like in plain clothes. I didn't recognize her, and she was like, "You look nice. Like you look nice in that suit, young man." And I was like, "Thank you." And she was just staring at me. I was like, "Why is this? Why is this white lady like staring at me like this?" She says, "You don't recognize me," and it was like I saw a ghost, and it was my judge, and she was like. I, I get emails about you and calls all the time. And, and she was like, where's that car? Did you did you buy your dream car? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I got it. She was like, I want to see it. And so when I'm walking her to the car, I turn and I say, I said, Judge Surrett, why'd you let why'd you risk your career and let me out? And she says, when you wrote me letters every year, you know, I, I started to just think differently. And I've heard every bullshit line that anyone can give someone. Yes. And when I, I gave you that court date and when you spoke to me, I just believed you. And she was like, I'm glad I let you out. And that shit made me cry. It was it was beautiful. Of course. It was That's violation insane. of all of the hard work. It's it's a true belief in, in the good of human and you good me good of human spirit. So do you feel like you've accomplished the master plan? Is it ongoing? Where are you at right now? If I had to say, Chris, status update. Yes. It's Tuesday okay. afternoon, status update. Where are you at with this master plan, man? How many more boxes we have to check? I think I'm at 98%. Some things that I'm not allowed to do at the moment. Like I had stuff like skydiving and like some crazy stuff. And now I got, you know, book deals and like movie deals and stuff. And so my agent is like, how about you risk your life after we we check this other stuff off the box? You know, I can't ride motorcycles and stuff like that anymore. So, so, but, but I also added some stuff to it too. So. What, what is, what is the core business right now? How, how do you, how do you keep the how do you keep the how do you keep the the wheels greased? How do you keep things moving along? How does Chris Wilson make money these days? So for I am a visual artist and I, I would say I'm the dopest artist that most people never heard of and incredibly successful. My work is collected and displayed uh, all around the world. Uh, and, and so it's my sole profession now. And so I've been doing it for about eight years. And so I paint. Uh, I make, I work with sculpture. I can draw. I do everything, and people pay me shit tons of money. For how'd you break? How'd you break into that, man? Like, like I mean, listen. There's a lot of artists out there, and there's a lot of artists you and I both know. We know right. a lot of artists, man, and a lot of them are struggling, starving artists. How does how does this dude who spent years in prison get out and just yeah, incredible high demand artist? Yeah, I, I would I would say that um, I, I, I stumbled upon it by accident because one of my close friends was a visual artist, uh, Jeffrey Kent, and I used to just watch him uh, make art. And um, he just gave me art lessons one day and I fell in love with it. And I was I was in business school, I was going through stuff. And so it became therapeutic for me and cathartic. And I just started painting every day. And next thing you know, people started writing checks for me, for me to, um, to, for them to have, collect my work. Jeez, man, what 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 excites you these days in the world of art? Like, what are you challenging yourself with? Any new mediums? Are you getting into the the, the Web three NFT space and some of the digital mediums? What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I plan to get into the Web three uh, space uh, at some point in NFTs. I just switched over uh, to oil paint, so I'm painting with oil. I fucking love it. Uh, and it's a whole new technique, man. Yeah, and and I'm going through an abstract phase, abstract expressionism. So, like for the past two years, I've just been doing really big, interesting cool abstract paintings. And so I just opened up a new uh, studio in Wynwood now, and I have a gallery now. I actually, I literally just did this last week. Yeah, check it out next week. Yeah, my mission now is to 
it is to take over Miami and just make the dopest art I can make. Why Miami, man? I mean, we were talking about before. Why? Why does Miami interest you? What? 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 what what's? What's in the water there, man? I, what know, people don't get that we get. Yeah. So, so I think I like the weather. That's that's one. Uh, I like the the tax benefits. If you make it your primary, mm-hmm. or I get to offset my income tax. Uh, I am a car collector, and it could be dangerous to drive a nice car in Baltimore. Uh, mm-hmm. and and in Miami, no one cares if you drive nice cars because everyone has nice cars. Not a big deal. And so I like it. And I have family down here. Uh, my, my, my friend, uh, Chris Adamo, who sits on my board and my foundation, is a, is a close friend. I love him to death. And I get to be around people that's dope. And I get to live a good lifestyle. And I'm an artist. And Miami is like number two, probably, I think, in the art scene. And this is the place for me. It definitely is the place for art, especially uh, down the road. I'm excited. I'm going to be down there in a month and we'll, we'll hook up. I want to see what you're working on. Then I want, I want to finish up talking about legacy. Um, when your time comes to leave this earth, what is it that you want people to say about you? What is it? What are those words you want on your tombstone, man? So earlier I said that I found out what my purpose was by the eight, at the age of 40 and kind of what my grandfather, what was so tough on me about and it's uh, acts of service. And so, and that's actually like my, my love language too, acts, acts of service. But I want people to say, regardless of like what he did when he was young, this person had the biggest heart. I secretly go out my way to support people, uh, to pay it forward. I'm real big into education. I'm real big into, you know, I don't always like it, but taking up those calls at 2 a.m. and when people are in trouble, um, I keep people's secrets. People can trust me. And I want people to just say he was a good person. And I, I, I think that would be the case. That's powerful, man. Do <sighs> you ever look back and, and, and say, what what if I didn't go to prison? Would I have this life? Would I have a similar life? Would I have a different life? Are you ever, dare I say, are you ever thankful for that time and that experience? It, it sounds crazy to say this, but but yes, this was this was baptism by fire, so to speak. But, but I don't want anyone to misunderstand and think that you got to go to prison to kind of get to where I'm at. But my experience made me who I am today. It gave me that grit and that resilience. Uh, and, but I wouldn't have made it. I don't think I would have made it given my trajectory as a young person growing up in the environment that I was in. I, I, I don't think I would have made it. And so my experience made me who I am today. That's powerful. Chris, what, what, is, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every day of your life? I think, I think, you know, uh, probably leave, leave breadcrumbs. I journal every day. And, and like I said earlier, I always try to be nice. And I always just think, I think about every interaction. You got to do the right thing, even when no one is watching. Cause, cause the truth always comes to light. People always, and I always assume I'm talking, I'm serious. I'm talking about even fucking text messages. Everything. And assume that everything will be looked at and, and, I want people like whatever they see, they're going to say, I wanted to be on brand for me. So like, I could, I could see him saying that or doing that. And, and I strive to be a good person and help people make the world a little better than it was the day before. Amen. Amen. And, and last but not least, you look back on your life and you've been in the darkest places, literally and figuratively that any human being could be in. You've been at the bottom, you've hit rock bottom. And I always say rock bottom is the most solid foundation to build up, man. And you clawed your way back. And you, Chris Wilson, 
how to harness that inner tenacity to pull yourself forward, up, bigger, and better, and follow that master plan and check those boxes, but do more than check those boxes. Chris Wilson, what keeps you focused? What is your compass? What is your North Star in life? So my my compass and what keeps me focused is the work that I do through my foundation. And, And really it's about helping people. We're in 22 states now. Our master plan program is a 13 week program that walks people through helping them find their their switch or, or, or change their mindset. If they want it, it might not be for everyone. Um, that's my mission. There's nothing special about me. I made it this far because people mentor me. People push me to be a better version of myself. And I want other people to find that discover like that inner switch and go out in the world and be fucking dope. Don't be ashamed to like live a good life. But, but do good work. Lessons to live by here. Go out in the world, do dope shit, do it the right way. Chris Wilson, I want to thank you so much for joining me. Hang with me for a moment here. This is a story of inspiration. This is a story of triumph, of human spirit, of faith, believing in a divine intervention, something bigger, and making good on it. So Chris Wilson, I appreciate you. Uh, I want everyone to uh, check out, follow Chris on Instagram at Chris Wilson Life, all one word. Find him at chriswilson.biz and chriswilsonfoundation.com. Anywhere else that I miss anything? Find right. him in Miami. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Find me in Miami or New York or Baltimore. I'm around. Good stuff, man. Listen, everyone, this is, this is why I do the show. I, I do the show to have conversations with real people like Chris to share his story as an inspiration. I love it. Right? When you think you're having a fucking bad day, Look, 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 look back on on this episode and an inspiration to think about what you could do every day. If this episode meant something to you, share it. Sharing means caring. It goes a long way. You could follow us on other social media channels. And guess what? If if you want to, if you want to connect with me and and connect with Chris, hit me up, Adam at nhptalentgroup.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. Leave a review, a rating. It goes a long way. Remember, look out for each other. Take care of one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>